This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. Coming up, an interview with Nalini Singh, author of the novel Quiet in Her Bones. I do get very emotionally invested in my characters, but not to the extent that their emotional, how shall I say it, devastation would also devastate me. Um, I've cried over the keyboard. We'll be back with Nalini Singh in just a bit. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. The episode you're about to tune into represents the continuation of close to eight years of dedication and perseverance for producing this show. In addition to conversations that go into depth about a writer's work and obsessions and craft, this show and every interview it features aims to embody the values of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection. I invite you to join me in this journey as a First Draft patron, which gives you access to cuts from the interviews that didn't make it to the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes, and a monthly newsletter. In addition, there are surprise thank you gifts that I offer when you enroll as a patron and spontaneous mailings like a bookmark all my patrons received this January embedded with flower seeds. You can become a supporter by going to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. Any amount is welcome, but for $6 a month, you receive thank you gifts on a monthly basis. Plus, when you donate to First Draft, you are joining the community of writers and readers who support conversations like the one you are about to hear. With your donation, you are saying yes to continuing the space of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection that each show reaches to achieve. I assure you, even $6 a month makes a huge difference to me in the production of this show. So why not make today the day to show your support? Why wait? Beat the odds of having to listen to this seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Please stay tuned. At the end of the show, I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. Thank you for being here with me today, right now, in this moment. And on to the show. My guest today is New Zealand writer Nalini Singh, who has written more than 60 novels and novellas. She is best known for her paranormal romance novels and series, which feature characters with supernatural or psychic talents alongside the pursuit of romance. Singh was born in Fiji and moved to New Zealand as a child. She is trained as a lawyer and also worked as a librarian, a bank temp, and an English teacher. Most recently, she is exploring, on her time away from the romance books, writing thrillers. Her latest is called Quiet in Her Bones, which tells the story of Arav, the adult son of a wealthy New Zealand couple originally from India. Arav's mother, Nina, was a socialite who disappeared 10 years before the story begins. Arav is still haunted by her disappearance and a fight he overheard that night between his parents and a bloodstain that was left on the floor. The story opens when Nina's body is found, and solving the mystery of her disappearance ten years earlier becomes Arav's focus. Arav, however, is recovering from a bad car accident and living with his father and his father's new wife and daughter. Arav has a shaky grip on reality and is heavily medicated but determined to solve the mystery. Because Nalini Singh is best known for her paranormal romance novels, we began discussing how she was seduced by this genre. Growing up, I read voraciously, and my parents let me read whatever I wanted. And so I developed taste, you know, I, I knew what I liked, and I really loved science fiction, fantasy, sort of any um, speculative fiction uh, books. So I read a ton of those. And then as I grow older into my teens, I found romance. And I also really loved romance. I loved the relationships. But when I was reading science fiction, quite often, I would wish there was a little bit more humanity in it. Um, uh, and maybe more of a relationship. And then when I was reading um, romance, sometimes I would be like, I wish this would be set in the world of, you know, like a science fiction or a, a fantasy world. And I didn't realize that there was an actual genre 
um, that kind of combine those two things and that's um, paranormal romance and it's that's what I write in and it's actually hard to describe because it's such a big umbrella so at one end you might have basically a fantasy or a science fiction book um, or a supernatural type book and it'll have a little bit of a romance um, and it tends to be put in the urban fantasy category and then on the other side you know you have um, a very heavy romance and then you have some light elements of um, another world or maybe there's a ghost or something and then in the middle is the is where I think I fit which is I write these really intricate um, long series um, in created worlds but the stories each individual story is driven by the relationships of the characters so um, I've always thought of my writing as asking what if questions um, in that genre so what if we were telepathic what if that telepathy drove us mad what would we do to survive so a lot of what I write comes from that and I think my early love of science fiction, fantasy, romance, and actually mystery as well all plays into that. So I've written mysteries inside the paranormal world as well. Tell me what was the what if question of quiet in her bones. And this was a little bit of a departure. I don't think it was your first departure, but it was a little bit of a departure from romance because this is a little bit more of a straight thriller so what, what brought you to the thriller and what was your what-if question? So, um, yeah, it's, it's definitely a thriller. There's no romance at all in, in Quiet in Her Bones. Um, so I'm, I am a big mystery reader as well and um, I've always loved it. And, and I've done it, as I said, in my paranormal worlds, you know, had threads of mystery. But it wasn't until a few years ago that while I was traveling around the country and I was just struck by how beautiful New Zealand is and also how um, how dangerous the, the, the landscapes can be. Um, it is a very sort of remote and uh, there's a lot of wilderness and a lot of people go into that wilderness without sort of appreciating how dangerous it can be um, if you're unprepared. And so all those things were just circling in my mind. And with Quiet in Her Bones, I think it was actually not a what-if question that inspired us unusually for me. I think it was actually the landscape. Again, I think both my thrillers have been inspired heavily by the New Zealand landscape and the possibilities within it. So Quiet in the Bones is set in the Waitakere Ranges Regional Park area. And I remember driving through Scenic Drive, which is this really long, and if you look it up on a map uh, on Google, you'll see that it's this road that just is this winding road that goes through massive greenery so that greenery is actually the regional park and you can't drive a car in there you know it's hiking trails and and I remember just looking out the side window and seeing this massive slope where it just goes into in the book I call it the devouring green you know this massive forest that if you sort of slid off the road into there um, would you be found I guess that's the what of question right what if, what if on a rainy night I slid off down this embankment? Would anyone find me? Or would the forest just, you know, cover me up? And that's where I would lie for the next however many years. And, um, yeah, so uh, I think my thrillers definitely are very heavily influenced by the environment. So you seem like the type of person who probably asks a lot of what-if questions during the day. So how do you know when a what-if question that you ask yourself rises to the point of discovering it through writing and writing a book about it? Oh, that's interesting. I, um, I actually keep a folder on my computer, and it's literally the random thoughts that come to me, the what-if questions or the little spark of something, and I just put them in there. And the ones that stick and won't leave me alone and I keep thinking about are the ones that become books or series. And the interesting thing is, it's not just that if it doesn't stick in my head at the moment I thought of it, like I've written it down and then I, I've moved on to another project, that doesn't mean that that idea isn't going to stick. Some of my ideas 
I had an idea five years ago. And then suddenly it's like it's been growing in the back of my brain for all that time. And it suddenly is ready for fruition. Some of it, I think, is how I grow as a writer. There are certain stories I feel like, okay, I'm now at a place in my writing journey where I'm ready to tell the story. Other things I feel like my subconscious is working on the story elements. And then it gets to a point where it has a shape um, and I can see it. And so it's time to start writing the book. That's interesting about you, you were talking about your own writing journey because you've written so many books that some people might assume that you've sort of arrived, but it doesn't sound like you think you have. Like you, you sound like you always want to at least grow or reach towards something else. Oh, yeah, for sure. I think part of the reason I adore writing, I love it, absolutely love it, is that I've always tried to to challenge myself as a writer and I've always given myself room to try different things. And I think for me, that constant growth, that constant development, that constant willingness to try things, um, you know, it makes me a better writer because it, whatever I learn working in, for example, say I learned something new working in thrillers, I then take that into my other books as well. So it's all developing me as a whole person and then that comes out in the writing and the other thing I was going to say is that a lot of things I try they never make it to my agent because I have this long tradition of surprising my agent with things that I've done and my first thriller was uh, A Madness of Sunshine I did the same thing I thought I want to write this but I also want to do it without any pressure at all I don't want people, you know, someone expecting a book from me at a certain time. I don't want to tell readers and then maybe the book doesn't turn out what I thought it's going to turn out. Um, and I also wanted to know if I could do it, do the whole thing, do a whole thriller. Um, you know, it's structured differently from my other books. And um, so I just did that in my free time after uh, I had actually finished my my contracted books my work on my contracted books for the day and um and there was you know that it's not the first time I've done it and I really think it's a good decision for me because I loved being able to explore this new idea this new genre um just by myself and then when I was ready uh when I had this book that's when I went to my agent and said look I've done this <laughs> So what shall we do with it now? And you said that you learn, you know, from each time you try something new. What did you learn from writing this and or the last thriller that you didn't know before? Or how did you change as a writer? I tell you, quite in a bones, it's a very specific thing. So it's in first person and I've never written a book in first person. And I didn't think I would ever write a book in first person. But this book came out that way. And I didn't realize I was doing it until, you know, a bit into the book. And I thought, oh, but that's how it wanted to be written. And so I've learned from writing quite in advance that I am fully capable of writing a book in the first person from a single point of view. I'm, I usually write multiple points of view in the third person. Um, so, yeah, that's been, that was a real um, a journey for me. So the main character of Quiet in Her Bones and the person you write from is Arav. Is that how you say his name? Arav, yeah. Arav. And so Arav is also a writer, a very successful one, almost as a surprise to himself that he was so successful. He grew up in a very wealthy family. His father is a businessman and his mother, her, her, her name is Nina. They're Indian and she came over from India and was like a village girl and then came and started to become her own woman. And I think her, her, her husband wanted more of an obsequious wife. He was so wealthy and she started to have ideas of her own and they had a very bad marriage. She drank, the husband drank, and she disappears one night after a fight and Arav he heard their fight and then she never came back. And that's where your idea of the forest came in because years later they find her car and her bones in the forest. And 
in the meantime, Arav has been in a bad car accident and he has to come back and live with his father while he's recovering. His father is remarried to a woman named Shanti, who also came from India, who is more obsequious. And they have a, a child together, Perry, who is Arav's half-sister. And so the action of this novel sort of happens where we see Arav moving back home and the discovery of the body and his passion to figure that out. At the same time, he's seeing a psychiatrist and you have chapters in there of some transcripts from the psychiatrist. And he's also, we learn that he's like borderline or a sociopath. He's not quite a reliable narrator. So can you um, talk a little bit about Arav and 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 finding his voice, especially since you said you wrote in first person? My process in general is that I do what I call a fast first draft or my skeleton draft. And basically I just I just sit down and go. Like it could be two weeks or three weeks. Um, and uh, the aim is to get to about 70,000 words and it's just literally just me blurting out whatever I think about the story. It's me telling myself the story. And I did that with this book as well. And that's how I find the book, found Arav's voice, Arav's voice. So at first he was quite opaque to me. Um, and that's happened previously with characters as well. And I just keep writing because I feel like that's how I write my way into my characters. I literally, you know, I just, I just word by word, scene by scene, I'm getting to know them. Um, and so that's what happened with Arav. So, so I do this first draft and then I do another draft and another draft and another draft. And I think it took up to two drafts for me to actually get into Ara's head. He's an unusual narrator because at first when I'm writing, when I was writing him, I thought, okay, he's like a, you know, he's a writer. He's, he's kind of mad. You know, he's angry at his parents, um, relationships, he's angry at his father. Um, I mean, all of that, it's part of his character, but it, it's pretty normal in a way. It doesn't, there's nothing unusual about him. And yet I knew there was something about him that wasn't quite right. And it took me until I think the third draft to really peel off the sort of the face he shows the world and get inside his head. And so, yeah, that was my process is literally writing my way into Arab's skin. So as you move to subsequent drafts, is that kind of about world building where you're you're just sort of adding more fat and more fat and muscle to the original? Yes, that's a good description. Yeah, I call it like, you know, building my skeleton up. Um, so sometimes that's, that first draft, that skeleton draft, I will actually delete quite a lot of it as I go on because it's a learning draft in a way. It's a telling myself the story draft. And there are parts in a book that as a writer, I need to know but that the reader doesn't need to read pages and pages about. So while the skeleton is there, the skeleton also gets reshaped a lot. And then, yeah, I'm adding layers. And in a sense, some of these layers, um, adding these layers means peeling back emotional layers. For So the, the deeper, I, the more layered the book gets, the more raw the characters become because we I know them so much better at that point. I can I can understand their emotional reaction so much better. Well, let's talk about Arav. As I said, he's recovering from an accident. He gets bad migraines. Sometimes he self-diagnosed himself as a sociopath. He's seeing a psychiatrist. He's angry at his father. He misses his mother. He's also kind of unreliable. So um, some of it for me is very instinctive. So I don't tend to think it out that way. But I think when I first started out, I was thinking, oh, it would be quite interesting to write a writer, because I don't think I've ever written, I'm trying to think now, I don't think I've ever written a writer as a main protagonist. And so I thought that that would be the core identity and I would write this writer and it would be a mystery and da-da-da. But he shaped himself and his core is actually not um, the fact he's a writer, even though that's a really important part of his life. The core is, is that inner sort of drive he has, this compulsion and obsession he has um, that's related to his mother's disappearance. And that has shaped everything about him. So 
what I find as I write is that I, as a writer, do less to influence my characters than my characters do, if that makes sense. Like, I get into their heads and then they tell me, this is the direction things are going to go, so get with the program. So, And um, Arav was a very strong character. And once I sort of clicked on who he was, I just kind of had to follow the lead of the character and what felt natural. One of the things he says, because he's coming home to stay with his father after a while, and he, I think of this book also as as a neighborhood story, which we can talk about because he lives on this, in this exclusive wealthy neighborhood that is called the cul-de-sac. And he's, he's suspects various members, including his father and other members of the neighborhood of potentially being the person that might have taken part in his mother's death. And so he's sort of looking at everyone under a microscope in his neighborhood, but they haven't seen him for a while. And he comes back and he's this successful writer. His, his, his book was made into a movie and you write um, early on when he's meeting one of these people again, he says, all must be sacrificed for the plot. And I'm wondering what you, if that's also how you feel about a writer, about writing. Um, <laughs> all must be said. I, I have to say, um, maybe not necessarily that way, but I can be quite ruthless in terms of my editing. So um, so I'll talk about my paranormal series because it's my, my thrillers are all standalones. Um, but the same thing applies um, in a smaller sense with the thrillers. But I have these two big, really sprawling series. And what this means is there's a lot of characters. And readers, of course, as in any series, have their favourites. And they all have different favourites. And quite often um, people will say, how come this character hasn't appeared in five books and um, do you not like them anymore? (laughs) And the truth is I'm very strict in the sense that a character only appears if they have a role to play if they have an effect on the plot um, on and in each particular scene. So while I wouldn't say all must be sacrificed for the plot, I would say I'm a ruthless editor of my own work and to the point that every so often I turn in a book and my actual editor will say, there's this gap here. Did you not write you know, there's like a a plot gap or something. And I'll be like, oh, oops, I did actually write that bit. And I edited it out um, thinking that it was, it was fat um, and unnecessary uh, when it was very necessary. So um, it, I think it's one of my strengths, but as you can see, it can also be a little bit of a weakness as well um, if I go too far. So um, it's, it's good to have people around me that I trust, you know, to give me the feedback. So as Arav is is trying to solve this mystery, he is hanging out with lots of people in the neighborhood. He has his mother's best friend and her husband, who's a doctor, Diane and Calvin. He has um, an old, I think he was a, a, a rock band star, and his wife, who have lots of parties and maybe orgies at their house. There's a lesbian <laughs> couple. There's his own half-sister who has some friends in the neighborhood. So... I thought about it a lot as I read it as a, as a neighborhood story. And even though he's he's using the neighbors or you're using the neighbors because they're all potential suspects and it's a thriller and we're trying to figure out what happened. But I thought it was also kind of about community. Um, I think that uh, an interesting thing I've figured out about my writing over the years is that I'm really drawn to the relationships between people and not just the romantic relationships, but the friendships, um, the enmities, you know, all, all these all these lines that connect people to one another. And I think that shows in my mysteries as well. So A Madness of Sunshine was set in a small town and Quite in a Bones is set in the cul-de-sac and it's almost like a locked room mystery, even though it's not a room. And um, I think... That's because of my tendency to really want to explore relationships and how they impact people. And I think in this book, we see this probably most clearly with Nina. Nina's gone. She's been gone for 10 years. And yet she had such an impact on so many people that it's like 
she's a living, breathing person um, still there. And the threads of her relationships um, with multiple people in the cul-de-sac are so different. You know, she's Diana's best friend. Um, she's the person who took Alice under her wing. And yet she's the, she's the person that had these horrible fights with Arab's father, and she could also be bitchy. And so she's, she's got all these facets, and all the relationships she had with the people in the cul-de-sac kind of help to create this three-dimensional character. So, yeah, I really, really enjoy um, writing people um, and people interacting with people and what that shows us about who each of these characters is. You have a word in there that sort of relates to that about people. It, I don't know if I'll pronounce it right, but it's Wanao. Whānau. It's New Zealand uh, te reo Māori. So Whānau means um, family, but it's it's not like a nuclear family. It It is a quite a wide-ranging, wide-encompassing word. So Whānau can be people that we embrace as family as well. Um, I wouldn't actually call the cul-de-sac a Whānau because it's, they're so disjointed and just dis, um, disconnected. And there are some relationships that um, work and some that don't. And, and I think in the book, you know, Arab says his family is, was never a whānau because they were never glued together, you know. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's, a really, it's a really good word. For example, at the end, oh, I, I don't want to spoil the book, but, you know, there are different small whānau in the book um, that people create for themselves I think he had that um, with his half-sister, who's much younger than him. Her name is Perry. And it was like, you know, sometimes when you create characters that have a lot of unlikable qualities, that they have this maybe soft spot or one of the reasons why you connect or like him. Um, I mean, he was he was this talented writer and he was a very intriguing character, but he was also really suffering and not in a good place and really singularly focused and not very nice to the women in his life and didn't have great pasts with a lot of people, but he had the sweetest relationship with his little sister. Yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah, you're right. You know, he does have that family bond with Perry and I think it's important to have multi-dimensional characters because people are multi-dimensional and so and we have to understand that we see our everything through Arab's point of view as well so even I wonder is he as bad as he thinks he is or is what we see with him with Puri more of who he has the capacity to be you know I, I like him because he's not a easy character to get to know and he really makes me think when I was writing, you know, in his head. And it's really hard to put him into a category as good or bad. I think he's grey. And I really enjoy writing grey characters. I've done a few of them. And, um, yeah, they're just interesting because, as you say, there is this one element to him that doesn't quite seem to fit this view that he has of himself. One of the things you do in the novel is you go back and forth in time a lot. You're going back, you're in the present where he's trying to figure out this murder mystery. You go back to the night that she, the mother, Nina, disappeared, and you're always modulating. modulating. I mean, sometimes it's in the same, same paragraph. Sometimes it's the way memory works um, for Arav, but I'm just I'm wondering about how you control that and if it's something you're very conscious of when you're writing I tend to not be so conscious of it when I'm writing it's uh, more the editing process so when they do that first draft I just I just put it all out and whatever comes I don't stop to edit and so yeah I do it in the the next drafts and then I that's when I look at structure and what's working and what's not and um, do I need a flashback scene when all you need is a line of particular information, for example. So that's when I do my really deep thinking edit. Um, so the first draft when I'm just pouring out words, it's very intuitive 
and emotional and just just go 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 and then yeah in the next draft that's when I do I do think about the structure I think about I think about pace I think about how things fit together in the final analysis and um, so another analogy I often use is a sculpture so shaping getting that sort of rough outline and then shaping it piece by piece you know sort of chisel break by chisel break and and then polishing it all up until it is what I want it to be. Another thing you did in there I believe is you wrote a suicide note. Yes. Yeah so it was a suicide note for his ex-girlfriend and was there anything different writing for you or did it make you feel a certain way writing a suicide note? No because when I write I'm very much within the perspective of the character. So in that case, even though we were in Iris' point of view for the entire book, obviously the suicide note was written by somebody else. And so for that moment in time, I'm in her head. And when I say that, I don't mean that I become the person. I mean, it's like I'm looking through her her eyes, but I still have that distance. I know who I am and I know who she is um, in the same way that I know who Arav is. And yet I am also stepped back I do get very emotionally invested in my characters, but not to the extent that their emotional, how shall I say it, devastation would also devastate me. Um, I've cried over the keyboard, but I've cried for them as opposed to crying for the reason that, you know, something's happening to me. I'm not putting myself within their skin, even though I'm writing. That's probably not the best analogy because I said I wrote myself into a skin but it's it is having that little bit of distance that allows me to um, be objective uh, even though I'm writing very emotionally traumatic things like this suicide note. Well I think writing is such an act of empathy it's it's almost like in some ways that you're you're an actor and you're you're inhabiting these people but it's also empathy for like the human race there's all kinds of people out there and you are diving into different personalities and ways of being when you are writing all these characters. Oh, yeah, I love that. I love that what you said about empathy. I definitely agree. For me, um, learning to see different perspectives, learning to see from the point of view of different peoples, it makes me a better writer. And interestingly enough, it's actually why I went into law, because I was able to see different perspectives. And so... It's part of my personality, and I think it does help in terms of creating rounded characters. Um, but, yeah, the word you've used, empathy, I think it's, it's perfect. Do you think writing so many different kinds of people have, have made you a more open-minded person? And I'm not saying that you were you were closed before, but you've, you've covered so – you've written so many books with so many characters. Um, I think it's, it's a sort of intertwined with my personal growth as well. So am I writing more diverse characters because I am becoming more mature and I have more people that I communicate with and know and whose um, li- of whose lives I'm aware? Or am I becoming a better person because I'm writing these characters that make me think deeply about things that maybe I wouldn't have thought of um, five years ago or ten years ago? So I think it's hard to say either or. Um, I think it, it it's all sort of a... A meld. As I grow as a person, my characters grow. But sometimes when I'm writing a character, things go in a direction I didn't expect. And they really open up my eyes to something. And that feeds into my growth as a person. And um, yeah, so it's all it's all linked. And did writing in first person make you feel any closer to the character than you you have in your other books since this was the first time you've done that? interesting I I don't think so because no matter which point of view I'm writing and on the page it's the first person in my head if that makes sense so when I'm with my characters they're in the first person um it's really hard to explain so it is I occupy the same space with them as a writer um it's just how it's transitions onto the page that's different yeah, it's like they're inhabiting you either way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know what it's like in New Zealand and what kind of conversations happen in the literary world, but 
I know here there's a lot of discussions about literary fiction versus genre fiction. What does it mean? Like a lot of people might say literary fiction is based on character and genre fiction is more about plot. I'm wondering if those conversations go on in New Zealand and and what your thoughts might be on that. There's a definite genre literary divide for sure. I think it it um, shows up in a different way here because it is a small country and, you know, the conversations here are more along the lines of what is New Zealand literature, you know. And for a long time, New Zealand literature has been a sort of very... I don't know how to say, um, you know, it's literary fiction set in particular parts of New Zealand kind of thing and certain stories, whereas I'm of the view that New Zealand literature is anything written by a New Zealand writer. So um, there's a different divide. And I think sometimes the view is that it's the more beautiful writing is in literary fiction, um, whereas, um, as you say, the genre fiction is just about the story and the writing doesn't matter so much and and I I totally disagree with that I think you can find beautiful writing um in genre fiction and in in literary fiction as well and but also you can find really bad writing in on both sides of the divide so in my personal view it's just to be honest it's it's an unnecessary divide um we're all writers we're all writing different kinds of stories. And I actually have a degree in uh, English literature. So I'm not snobby about literary fiction. And I I love genre fiction. And I always have. I've always read on both sides. And so that's, that's why I don't sort of understand why these sort of conversations go on. It kind of feels like... Um, People want to keep everyone in these neat little boxes. Um, But as readers, and quite often writers, we don't fit in one box. Um, There are people who write literary fiction and genre fiction and um, do both very well. So, um, yeah, I think we should all just appreciate different kinds of writing because I know as a reader I appreciate the variety of material that I have available to me to read. And um, and that's amazing. I think right now the competition isn't another type of writing. The competition, if you want, I'm putting it in ear quotes, is entertainment of another kind. So, you know, Netflix and um, online things, YouTube, all that kind of stuff, that is what is... Um, drawing people's attention away. So as long as people are reading, as long as they're talking about books, I mean, we should celebrate that. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? I've got an unusual one. So I'm not going to read you uh, fiction. This is a little bit of nonfiction. Um, And it was a few years ago, I read this book, and it really spoke to me. And it has to do with, um, I mentioned it earlier, about finding quiet space in the present world. So it's called, um, it's a book called Unsubscribe by Jocelyn K. Glay. I think that's how you say her last name. But um, here's a little bit. You could easily fritter away your whole day commenting on every Facebook update your friends post or responding to every at reply you receive on Twitter. An unlimited stream of information awaits at all times, willing to eat up as much of your time and energy as you want to give it. But if you give all of your attention to inputs from other people, you will have nothing left with which to create your own outputs. So it's just that's just a little bit, but it, um, the book is just it's very practical um, in terms of um, how to manage the information overload. But um, I just like what she said there about having creative energy. Yeah, and I've read that you you set everything aside when you write. You sort of turn everything off, leave it all behind. Yeah, yeah. So um, my friends all know that if they text me, you know, they're not going to get a reply until I've actually finished what I'm doing. I don't have email turned on, um, for example, on my computer. So the Wi-Fi is turned off. Um, I really like that peacefulness. 
And I also think just in terms of brain chemistry, I read somewhere that each time we're interrupted, it takes, I think, 15 minutes or something for our brains to actually get back into the flow. So if I'm interrupted five times an hour, um, that's the whole hour's gone, you know? So um, I'm a big believer in having spaces to write, you know, mental space to write. And and when I say that, I know people will be going, yeah, but I'm busy and I have this life that I need, you know, I have kids. Um, so I've written everywhere. I've written on the floors of airports. I've written, you know, with the announcements going. I've written on a bus surrounded by people. This isn't to say I can't write any other way. This is my perfect writing time, which is switch everything off and write in peace for 45 minutes. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft. So I will write, read actually chapter one of Quiet in Your Bones, which is literally half a page. And um, I'm quite, I really like it because as I said, this is my first book in first person. Um, and I feel like I got it right, you know, in this, in this first bit where we um, get into the story. My mother vanished without a trace 10 years ago. So did a quarter of a million dollars in cash from my father's safe. The police came. The neighbors whispered that she was a thief. My father called her a bitch. She'll turn up, and when she does, I'll have her in handcuffs. That's what he said. That's what he screamed. He was right. It took 10 years, but she has turned up. The police found her car in the dense bush of the Waitakere Ranges regional park four hours ago. She was inside. Well, her bones were anyway. Those bones were clothed in the remnants of the red silk shirt she was wearing that night, the night I heard her scream. That's chapter one. Do you want to talk a little more about why you chose that? Um, So I remember when I started writing um, and I realized it would be in first person, actually... I actually, when I had done my writing for the day, I stopped and I went and read craft articles on first person because it's been a long time since I've started, you know, done craft workshops because after a point, it's about learning from doing. And I hadn't actually done this before, so I thought, hmm, maybe I should go do some, you know, study about it. So I did study. And the one thing that a lot of the things I read pointed out was that a really well done first person isn't about I, I, I. There's a lot of information and you know you're in the character's head without the constant insertion of the character. And that's part of the reason I chose this bit. So if there are writers out there who like to break things down, if you look at that, um, that little bit and you look at how many eyes, you know, I did this, I did that, are in there, it's actually very, very few from the um, point of view character. And um, so that's something I was quite conscious of when I did my edits. Like how, how can I write this in a way where it flows um, without the point of view character sort of pushing themselves to the fore all the time? And there's, you know, there's one in quotes where where he says, um, she'll turn up and when she does, I'll have her in handcuffs. But that isn't, that's an I, but it's her, the father talking. So the only yes. one you have is in the last sentence. So it, it has this extra punch because it's like the night I heard her scream. Yeah. Yeah. So I was really, you know, I felt like I got that right. Yes. Where do you write? Mostly in my study. So I'm lucky enough to have a study at home. And um, I used to wander around the whole house, and I still do at times when I'm editing. But in general, I try to stay at my desk because um, I did have shoulder problems, and I think that most writers who write for a long time will have some kind of issue. And um, so my desk is set up so it's ergonomic, and so I try and stay here. But when I'm editing, uh, I quite often edit um, my second draft in a printout, so when I'm editing on paper, I will move around um, to wherever I feel like it. But I find these days quite often I do still stay in my study uh, because it's it's a thing of I know when I walk in here, it's 
my writing time and my brain flows into it. And yeah, but um, so in general right now, especially right now, given the state of the world, it's my study. But um, prior to the apocalypse, I used to travel a lot. Um, and I quite like writing in planes and, um, you know, anywhere really where I can find time. One thing I do do, and it's a tip that's helped a few other writers, so I'll share it here, is um, I listen to rain sounds on my phone or, you know, um, and I find it's kind of like a white noise. So I can just, because I've been doing it for so long, it's kind of a trigger for my brain. Oh, the rain, rain sounds are on and it's raining time. So um, it's a way to recreate the study environment without having the study around me when I'm traveling. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? Um, so right now I, I really like plants. I have a lot of indoor plants. I also have a garden, so I do a lot of um, gardening, looking after the plants. And I, um, the other thing is um, in 2020, I learned how to do miniatures from miniature kits. So I've got some pictures on my Instagram if anyone's interested, but they're really fun. I listen to audiobooks, and then um, I do these little tricky miniatures um, just, you know, when I need a break. And, yeah, it's good fun. It's just completely something different. And um, it gets me out of my head doing something practical. I don't know what a miniature is. I don't know if that's a lost in translation thing or I'm just not tuned in. <laughs> oh, it's like, it's literally what it sounds like. So I did one that's like a, you know, a greenhouse, but it's miniature. It's like the size of, I don't know, like it's not a, not even a foot tall and everything inside is in a miniature. So it's got tiny miniature shelves tiny miniature flowers, you know, tiny miniature um, chairs um, inside. So basically it's about recreating um, real things, but like in a tiny, tiny scale, like a one-inch scale or even smaller than that. Um, so I have tiny books. I did a bookstore and it's got hundreds of tiny books in it. And um, I printed out covers for my own books. So I've got tiny miniature versions of my books in the bookstore. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? It depends. So in general, I like to get my first full feedback from my editor because we've been working together. Um, she's been my editor since 2005. So we've got a lot of trust built up. She, she knows my work. She gets my work. And I really um, trust her judgment. And also my agent. Um, we've been together even longer. And um, But... Depending on the book, I might ask some very specific beta readers to give me feedback, particularly if I am worried about a certain aspect of things. And I know that there's something that they have expertise in or that they can give me feedback on. So I would then ask those people, those very specific people, um, I would ask them if they would mind reading it for me and giving me specific feedback on these points. Quite often... Because I handwrite so many edits, um, my sister um, is my assistant and she inputs the changes for me. I used to do it all myself, um, but now she does it for me. And so as she's doing it, um, she will sometimes give me some feedback. I'll ask her for it. And she's really honest and she knows my writing. She's read everything. So she's probably one of the first people who sees things. So, yeah, it's, it's a very small group. In general, it would be her. Um, and then when the manuscript goes to my editor um, and my agent, um, that's where the feedback comes from. I'm not a big believer in having massive amounts of feedback from different people, like having like a committee, because I think that that has the risk of watering down work. Um, I would rather have one, two or three people just to give me that feedback. How have you dealt with rejection? Oh, um, <laughs> in many ways. Um, so when I was starting out, I was uh, submitting a lot and getting rejected a lot. And my actually my number one way to deal with it was just to keep going. So every time I was rejected, I would just send out more material. And it was something another writer recommended to me. And they said, if you're on submission, don't just have one thing out there because when it comes back, if it's rejected you'll just be devastated. 
Whereas if you have four or five, there's always hope. There's always hope that the next one is going to be not a rejection. So in my case, that's what I did. I was really determined and really passionate about my work. And I just kept, kept sending stuff out. I actually think it was really good, um, really good training for when I first got published because that's when the reviews start coming in and, you know, the one stars, which are rejections, basically. Um, so by that stage, I was like, I was okay with it because I had had so many rejections um, anyway. So, yeah, looking back, it's, you know, it's all part of the journey. And what is your favorite word? <laughs> I... Um, find this really difficult I I think my word would change with every book um, or if I find a new word and I actually have to be very conscious of it because I think um, I as a writer I know I repeat certain words that I really like and so I have to go off at the end and take them all out but yeah I can't tell you one single word because I was sitting there and um I knew you were going to ask this question and I thought I'm, I'm just going to be like, I, I have no idea at all. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. No, it was really good. Thank you for inviting me on your show. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing. My guest was Nalini Singh, author of the novel Quiet in Her Bones. If you like today's show, check out my interview with Miley Malloy, whose novel Do Not Become Alarmed focuses on the disappearance of a family of children while on a cruise in Central America. You can find that interview and the entire First Draft archive of 300 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips for my guests, books, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping the show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to www.patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Viet Tan Nguyen, Anna North, Imbolo Mbue, and Leila Alamar. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.